0: JP Morgan Chase Bank NA member FDIC. Copyright 2024 JP Morgan Chase & Company. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong
1: I'm Maeve Higgins and this is Solvable, interviews with the world's most innovative thinkers working to solve the world's biggest problems.
2: My solvable is that by 2030, we can make sure every girl gets a great education and she gets a chance to be a leader. What makes me want to solve this problem is my life experience. I know how transformative education is and having had the privilege of being a leader, I want to see more women get access to leadership positions.
1: That is Julia Gillard, the first and so far the only woman to be Prime Minister of Australia. She left office in 2013. As you'll hear, leaving office was tough for her. Getting there in the first place was even tougher, though, and this isn't surprising. Around the world and throughout different industries and roles, women leaders are actually on the decline Forbes reported that women held under a quarter of senior roles across the world in 2018 and women represent just 5% of Fortune 500 CEOs. But we're jumping ahead. Globally, girls are more likely than boys to be excluded from primary school and women make up more than two-thirds of the world's nearly 800 million illiterate people. But say you're one of the lucky ones. You go to school, you go to college, you excel in your field it's still unlikely that you'll actually become a leader. Just in the United States alone, the figures are pretty bad. Take medicine, where women represent 40% of all physicians and surgeons, but fewer than one in five are permanent medical school deans. Or look at academia. Women have actually earned the majority of doctorates for eight consecutive years, but they are only 32% of full-time professors. And looking again at the world of business, here in the US, the Government Accountability Office recently published a report on improving gender diversity on boards. It says the importance of diversity must be emphasised and a diverse set of underrepresented candidates required. It also says boards should have age or term limits. And other countries have done that and more, and they've seen results, and that includes Australia. Today, we have this really great exchange between Malcolm Gladwell and Julia Gillard. Gillard started her career as a lawyer in Melbourne, coming to politics in 1998, when she was elected to the Australian House of Representatives. Before becoming their first woman prime minister in 2010, she was the first woman deputy prime minister and the first woman leader of a major party. Following her term as Prime Minister, she's accepted fellowships and visiting professorships at universities around the world. And she currently chairs the Global Institute for Women's Leadership over at King's College in London. They have a mission to better understand why women continue to be underrepresented in positions of leadership. So let's hear what she's got to say.
0: You served as Prime Minister of Australia. And you had the question that faces anyone coming out of high office, which is what do I do next? And tell me how you came to decide what you wanted to do next. And what what was sort of the what led you on the particular course that you're on now?
2: It's a fair old punch when you come out of a big position like that. You don't realize how tired you are until you stop. Uh, so I did give myself a little bit of time to do some grieving about what was lost and some physical recovery. But in that period, I tried to think through what is it about this that I want to take with me and what is it I want to discard? And when I worked my way through that, it was clear that the ongoing passion I'd had was around education, so I wanted to take that with me. And then having had a really you know, transformative set of experiences around being a female leader, I wanted to do something to make a difference for other women and their prospects for coming through for leadership.
0: It's funny you used the word grieving, but so you didn't think of it, I mean, as an answer, I would have said you would have come out of it with a sense of triumph.
2: Oh, no, you don't. Uh, There aren't too many elegant ways out of politics. Uh, Former Australian Prime Minister Paul Keating uh, rang me the day after I lost office and by way of consolation said to me, we all get taken out in a box, love. Uh, Thanks for that, Paul. Uh, But the truth of politics is either your party knocks you over or the electors knock you over. Uh, Not many people actually pick the moment that they're going to gracefully exit politics. And so, you know, it's been such a public high-wire act and then such a public defeat that I think grieving is the right word.
0: Yeah. But you you didn't take, how much consolation did you take in the fact that you had broken through for women. You were the first female Prime Minister of Australia.
2: Oh, I'm very proud of that and I don't want to over-dramatise this um, grieving period. I don't feel like that now, but I did let myself have a number of weeks where I didn't do very much, I just recuperated and I did allow the emotions of the loss to be with me And then you can put it aside, but if you've never let it course through you, then I think it probably manifests several years down the track, probably in a mutated and unpleasant kind of way. Uh, but since that period, I've you know been very focused on the new challenges. And when I look back on the past, it's with a sense of uh, pride, with lessons learned, with things to share. Um, I'm very glad I did it, and I'm a great advocate for people doing it. I don't think there's any better opportunity than politics to put your values into action and to make the most change.
0: How when when you said that you came out of this experience with a desire to. Uh, further opportunities for women in positions of leadership. When you think back in your time in office, how many female peers did you have in your political circle?
2: Fortunately, uh, quite a few. We were on a journey of change as a political party, we'd had a lot of women come in around the time I came into parliament in the mid-1990s. And so some of my most senior ministerial colleagues were women, um, Jenny Macklin and Nicola Roxon and Tanya Plibersek, and the list goes on, uh, Penny Wong. Uh, so I did feel well supported and surrounded by women. Uh, still a minority um, in our political party, in the ministry and certainly in the parliament, mm-hmm. uh, but a sense of sisterhood there.
0: Yeah, what percentage, when you were prime minister, what percentage of parliament was were women?
2: Uh, around about twenty five percent in the House of Representatives and about a third
0: in the Senate. And that that number had already increased dramatically over the course of it. But gone back a ten or fifteen years previously, what would it have been?
2: Oh, yes, that had increased dramatically. If you went back to the uh, early 1990s, the figure would have been around 14% for the parliament. So, uh, yes, there'd been a big change and particularly a big change in the Labor Party uh, because we'd adopted an affirmative action rule. So a certain percentage of seats had to go to women and that percentage had grown over time to 40%. So a very dramatic change in Labor. Yeah,
0: yeah. I want to come back to the... the 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 role of these those kinds of rules in in terms of bringing about change as opposed to uh, attitudes so i think it's a really important one but um i wanted to before i get there i'm i'm curious about two a, a couple of things one is that this question of numbers so if if you said it was 25% when you were there how high does it have to be before the issue starts to go away?
2: <laughs> I'm not sure that you can put a mathematical number on that, but there's plenty of research that says, you know, one woman can't make the difference. But once you get up to figures like a third, then you do start to see changes. And intuitively, that seems to me to be around about right that to have an impact on cultural mores and the way that institutions work, you need at least a third.
0: Yeah. Do you think that had there been a third or, say, let's say 40% of the parliament had been female at the time you were prime minister, that would have tempered some of the misogyny that you faced?
2: Not necessarily. Unfortunately, I'd love to be able to say yes to that question, but uh, it wasn't just within the parliament that there was an issue about gender and gendered insults that was, you know, profoundly in the media, in social media. Uh, and so I think it would have flowed anyway. And then because the political contest is a fierce one, and I think it should be, I mean, you're contending about values and big picture issues, so people should be strongly engaged in that clash of ideas. But because that clash is so strong, um, it's, you know, it would really be naive to say, well, women never participate in using that gendered imagery. That's not my experience.
0: Yeah. But it doesn't change the climate for someone engaging in that kind of rhetoric. Is it different when they look around and they see lots of female faces than when they look around? Do they have less permission to speak that way when they're in a...
2: In a more female environment. I think um, ultimately the more women there are, the less permission there is to speak that way. And second, the more public... Uh, pressure and advocacy about being better about women in leadership, the more things will change. I mean, I lived with the phenomenon of social media, but, you know, it was relatively recent. I mean, social media has been turbocharged in the time since. And now, you know, social media is often used to call out someone who's engaged in sexist conduct. I mean, this is uh, the legacy of the Me Too movement, but it goes beyond uh, the issue of sexual harassment There wasn't much of that when I was there. So in some ways we were getting the negative side of social media without that more positive side of trying to advocate for better ways of including people in dialogue without name-calling or using gendered insults.
0: There's an interesting distinction between the participation of women as a whole and the participation of women in the highest levels of leadership. And I'm wondering, are they one problem or are they two problems? Can you if you solve the first question of general participation do you inevitably solve the second or is it a, is there a, a whole different battle that has to be fought about getting women from the backbenches to the to the cabinet or to the prime minister's office
2: I think they're related uh, but not the same problem so you're never going to see Um, equal ministries or women be prime ministers an equal amount of time, unless you've got a backbench that's round about half-half, because you don't even have people in the qualifying ring. Um, But you then still need uh, to change a set of other things to make sure women are coming through for leadership, um, including this uh, public media reception and how gendered that is, very practical set of questions for women with kids around work and family life, um, even the attraction or lack of it uh, for women to these combative sorts of uh, occupations. I think all of that needs some attention, but it starts with getting, you know, half, half on the back bench.
0: Yeah. In terms of, because I was thinking this in terms of, if you think about it from the perspective of a voter, I've always wondered whether the act of Voting for a female candidate prepares you adequately for the act of supporting a female leader or or whether one might actually be uh, an excuse not to do the other that if because I voted for a female candidate, I no longer feel I need to support a female leader female leader so the i 've given it the office kind of uh, <laughs>
2: I think in this area of uh, gender and leadership, there is a bit of giving it the office. I think that's true um, in the corporate world as well as in politics. Uh, There's actually research that shows uh, that many uh, chairs of boards of directors and CEOs, when they get the one woman, you know, the one woman on the board, the one woman in the C-suite, then go, tick that box, that gender thing, we've done that, let's move on. Uh, So a bit of giving it the office. I think in politics, voting for a female candidate is a great start, but we shouldn't assume just because people are prepared to vote for female candidates that they'll look at a female leader and receive her and evaluate her equally. There's plenty of psychological research about all the unconscious biases, the little whispers in the back of our head uh, that tell us that when women come through for leadership, they're probably not very likable, probably very hard-bitten, you know, difficult to get along with, Uh, and that then refracts into how much uh, sense of connection do you feel to the leader, how much are you prepared to follow her, how critical or harsh your evaluation is if she gets into some political trouble and inevitably if you're in politics you'll get into trouble one day. Uh, So I think that there's a set of other things that have to happen. But I don't think people sit there and say, oh, I voted for a woman, so job done. I do think that there's an appetite in the community to see more women come through.
0: If your task is to increase, your goal is to increase the number of female leaders, particularly in areas where there have been very few, I'm curious about how strategic one should be. So I'm remembering during the civil rights movement in America, you know, there was a Rosa Parks was the woman who was chosen to desegregate the buses of Montgomery, and she was chosen very deliberately. They wanted a woman of a certain age, of a certain background, of impeccable character, of and on and on and on, because they knew they had one shot to sort of make their. And I, I had the same feeling when I met. Uh, she's now left, but she was the secretary of the Air Force in the current administration in America. I happened to meet her, and I thought, oh, there's a woman. If she ran. Could win, could become president. I don't know why I felt that, but I felt that. But I, um, and we can talk about why I felt that. But I'm curious about: is it is that a worthwhile activity? That kind of strategizing at the beginning about who, and do you have a do you have a picture in your mind about who the pioneer should be?
2: I'm really cautious about that, and I'm cautious about it because. I sort of learned my feminism uh, doing things like reading. Um, Anne Summers, a great Australian feminist, wrote an incredibly important book called Damn Whores and God's Police. And it was an analysis of women's roles in the early days of um, when the United Kingdom started sending convicts to Australia. And she was making the point that there were really only two ways to be a woman. You were either the virtuous one or you were a damned whore and there was nothing in between. And I would worry that we're going to uplift that template and say, you know, here's Pearl, Pure Heart, Who is this incredible person who's never put anybody's needs in front of her own, and she's the perfect candidate? You know, why do we lift that burden up and put it on the shoulders of women when we don't lift it up and put it on the shoulders of men? They can be um, self interested, petty, um, you know, angry, and still end up. President and Prime Minister and all of the other things around the world, CEO, Chair of the Board. Uh, So I'm anxious about that. But I'm not naive either. You know, when the US, um, and obviously we're in primary season now, when the US next looks towards a female candidate, I think there will be a lot of reflection on what is it that will make her the most electable particularly having been through the scarring experience with Hillary but i just something in it me just feels quite itchy and irritated by the stereotyping
0: but it's interesting though that the rules are different for the dominant group and the group that's trying to get in right the, the dominant group has extraordinary latitude in who they as you i don't need to name names but you can be boorish uh uh, narcissistic, uh, unqualified, un- ill-equipped for, you know, un- unknowledgeable. I could go on and be elected as a man. Like, it's it, bar is quite low. But the bar very high for the first woman or the second, or even the second woman. Um, that's the only reason I – but I'm, now I'm thinking of my – this woman who was the secretary of the Air Force. But I'm wondering is my perception of what electability is, am I simply reinforcing – my own stereotypes about women when I I go through the analysis of what electability means?
2: I think it is a little problematic in the sense that there's a set of assumptions about potential stereotyping of women candidates. So I think you're attracted to a candidate with a military background because you're working off the assumption that a female candidates going to be looked at and people are going to think, is she too soft to press the button one day if that's ever needed in the defence of the United States? And so you're already um, going for the stereotype and trying to then counteract the stereotype in the candidate. And that's practical and smart. And if you were getting a job as a political advisor, you'd probably need to be doing all of those things but I still worry about the stereotyping underneath.
0: Is the problem different for business and politics? Is it harder to get women into the C-suite in a corporation than it is to get a woman into the, a real leadership position in politics or the opposite?
2: I think they're different kinds of hard. And if we look at the global statistics, it's telling us that they're different kinds of hard uh, because the number of women who are either political leaders or senior managers is around about the same in the 25% zone globally. When we actually look at women on corporate boards globally, it's down at the 15% range, and by the time you're talking about senior leaders in IT, you're down at the 9% range. So it's a different kind of hard. I think the hard in politics is a lot about uh, how women are received in the public square and treated in the public square, I think a lot of the hard in business is about uh, the the tracks, the pipeline, where the women are in the areas that take you to leadership or already from the start of their careers in those areas that might take you to being head of HR, but no further. And then there's a set of unconscious biases and male networks which come into play that make it harder for women to come through.
0: When it comes to business, there's been a lot of focus on the role of the number of women on boards. I'm curious. Do you do we think that solving the board problem is the most important thing in in um, in increasing the number of women in the C-suite, or is that? I'm always I'm, I'm, curious about why why is that such a priority. I would naively I would have said that's down on my list of things of priorities.
2: I think it's important in. The role modelling effect, because boards are very celebrated and public, there is evidence that more women on boards do make a difference to the nature of the conversation and particularly the nature of the conversation around diversity and inclusion. So it's a trigger point for them getting further change. But I agree with you that if we ended up with businesses where the boards were always half-half but when you looked at the pipeline in the business, you still saw women clustered in the junior grades, big gender pay gaps, uh, not enough attention paid to work and family life, that would not be a victory. I think we want every point in a woman's life journey and particularly uh, from the work I'm doing at King's College London with the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, we're focused on the work journey. We want every point in that to be one where a woman is not treated in a lesser way than a man.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about, first of all, who does this well? When you look around in your current position, at King's College in this program you just talked about, you must look around the world and you must say, okay, there's someone, there's a group, country, community, what have you, that's, that's solving this problem um, in a way that we can, we can use as a model. So who are your models?
2: we're we're certainly looking for models, but there's an information problem that we've almost got to solve first, which is we've got any number of indexes about gender, but they are not focused on this question of women's leadership. and because they tend to include statistics about, you know women's general health, women's education levels, then they cluster at the top the wealthiest nations in earth that have largely solved those problems, but they don't give you a fine-grained look at women and leadership. So we are working to build an index that would do that, which would enable you to just do a comparison on women leaders, politics, business, civil society, the law, technology. If we had that information, we'd be able to surface some clearer examples. But just looking um, at the moment, you get all sorts of interesting things popping up. Um, Malaysia, there are more women in IT, far more than uh, the global statistics would lead you to believe. So then you can go and unpack why is that. Uh, Slovenia we looked at because there are far more women judges than the global statistics would lead you to expect. When we unpacked that, we actually found that they've got a very rules-based legal system with very little discretion. So being a judge is not viewed as that fantastic a job. It's a more mechanistic job. Uh, So we want to get more information to keep looking. Um, Many Big businesses, uh, you know I'm thinking of the biggest global companies in the world are very serious about this agenda and you know you can point to individual things they're doing that are working, but no one's done the big solve. There's no one that you can just point to and say if everybody did what X is doing, then we would fix this.
0: But if I was a, if you could if I was a 21 year old woman whose ambition was to be the leader of a country somewhere in the world, and you could wave a magic wand and make me a citizen of any country in the world, where, where, would, you, where would you send me to maximise my chances? <laughs> uh,
2: the statistics would tell me that I'd have to send you to um, Iceland or one of the uh, Nordic Scandinavian-style countries. Um, the statistics would tell you I could send you to Rwanda, but then we'd have a complex debate about how much power is in the parliament versus how much is uh, in the hands of the president. But they're the nations on earth that come up with the largest numbers for women MPs. On the business, I could send you
0: to New Zealand. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, the, on the business, what about the business side? The, um, the One of the questions I had about the business was, There seem to be two, you were talking about how there's very few women in IT and women tend to be overrepresented in HR and HR is not nearly the kind of pipeline to upper leadership as other areas of companies. What is the right approach to solving that problem? Is it elevating those um, areas where women are already strong so that you could, so it becomes legitimate to become CEO if you came up through HR or is it getting women out of HR?
2: I think it's a bit of both, and I think it's a profound reworking of what we think merit is. And there's some fantastic writing on this at the moment, a great book about why we keep promoting incompetent men, and it challenges us to look at the way in which selections get done in businesses. So our interviews where we look really and we're assessing charisma the best way of selecting people to go into jobs. And then as we go up the promotion track, um, the frames around men and women, you know, he's always there in the office, so valuing sort of presentism rather than outcomes, uh, people who have got a lot of um confidence who are there grasping at opportunities who may not be leading their teams well or actually delivering but everybody notices them uh, they are more likely to be the ones that get promoted and he's done in this book uh, the author a wonderful analysis of how that is gendered how our very view about what merit is is gendered
0: let's let's talk about sort of the kinds of steps one would practical steps one would like to see to kind of reverse it. But let's start with that. So, if in fact the way we assess marriage is gendered, how do we ungender it?
2: How do we ungender it? Well, first I'd say we don't know everything we need to know, which is why we're still researching it. But of the things we do know, uh, gender blind selection processes make a difference. So, instead of sending in applications, you know, uh, John Smith, you know, Sue Jones, where you can see from the front. You take the names off, have other forms of identifiers. Uh, Instead of doing uh, CV style explorations, you ask candidates to solve a problem and send it in and assess on that. Uh, That you, uh, in interviews, instead of just having a chat, which might allow a charismatic candidate to structure the conversation, you have a very Clear set of questions that every candidate gets asked to respond to in the same order. So you get clear comparatives. Uh, More metrics, you know, around what achievement is. So not dealing with things on the face of them, but digging behind uh, when you're looking at promotion tracks. Uh, All of those things make a difference.
0: The introduction of structure, in other words, has the, even if it's not explicitly intended to favour one group over another, has the effect of levelling the playing field.
2: Yes, it does. Uh, Because if you imagine yourself and... Where We all, uh, as human beings, respond to this. If you are you and I were sitting here now on an interview panel and we're going to see 10 candidates today, uh, then the one that bounces into the room full of confidence, seems charming, you think to yourself, well, I wouldn't mind having a drink with them at the end of the day when we get through this bloody interviewing process. Um, they're the one that you're most likely at the end of the day when we're exhausted to say, who should we give this job to, um, they'll be the candidate that we remember. But have we really made a thoughtful selection or just fallen for a sort of confidence, charisma? And some jobs require, you know, if we were selecting someone to uh, be an on-air television presenter, then maybe confidence and charisma would be right at the top of the list uh, but if we were running a business and we were selecting a new uh, head of our technical division uh, or even a new head of our financial division, uh, actually confidence and charisma probably aren't anywhere near the top of the list in terms of the skills we need.
0: Why is, why is selecting, I don't, I'm not, I don't disagree, but I'm curious, why is something I'm always puzzled about, uh, why are informal selection processes that default to rewarding people for confidence and charisma, gender. There are plenty of women who are incredibly charismatic. I've never understood why. So there's a, it's an attraction to a, a male variety of charisma. That seems to be the issue, not an attraction to charisma as a whole, right? Because there's, ton, like I said.
2: Yes, yes, plenty of uh, confident, charismatic women. But unconscious bias research would tell us that we easily put a frame around a confident, charismatic woman that she's pushy, um, too strong uh, because she's going against the stereotypes whispering in the back of our brain that we expect women uh, to be a little less forthright than that, whereas we have an unconscious bias that we expect men to be you know, pretty out there, pretty comfortable in their skin, owning the space. Uh, and so we don't in any way mark a man down for that. Mm-hmm. So it's not, I'm, I'm not trying to put the proposition that confidence and charisma are somehow um, unequally distributed between the sexes. I don't believe different. that. I think they're interpreted
0: differently. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense, yeah.
2: And, and you know, once again, I'm conscious in all of this we end up talking in um, sort of generalities and some stereotyping when we're actually trying to get away from stereotyping. So I'm not trying to say every human interaction is like that, but the analysis would tell us that on average, more of those things come into play for women than come into play for men.
0: You had mentioned that the Labour Party in Australia had an affirmative action policy, which set clear goals for how many women... How many seats ought to be held by women? Talk a little bit about that approach. That idea of instead of using soft methods of changing things, you go in and you set hard standards. Is that has was that reflect on how well it worked for the Labor Party in Australia? And do you think that is a strategy that should be used in? Many different domains.
2: To give you the Australian story just in snapshot, um, if you go back to the 1990s in our national parliament, both sides of politics, conservative and progressive, uh, were around about 14% women. And the Labor Party looked at that and said, we need to change it. And so it ultimately went for a structural solution for an affirmative action target and different jurisdictions, We, even though we're sending people to a national parliament, there are still some differences between how in the state of Victoria seat selection will be done compared with New South Wales or South Australia. So there wasn't just one answer to how to get that done. Uh, but, for example, in the state of Victoria where I was, uh, the system was you pre-selected for the whole round, every member for the House of Representatives, every senator, And if you hadn't hit the target for winnable seats, so you couldn't cluster the women in the unwinnable seats, if you hadn't hit the target for winnable seats, then you'd have to have the whole pre-selection round again. Now, in politics, this is an unimaginably bad sanction. Every vote, every double cross is on the table because you've already done the round once and now you're going to do it again? No. Uh, So people delivered to the target. And it worked. And so Labor has been as high as 48% women. Mm -hmm. On the other side of politics, they went for a less structural approach or a zero structural approach. And they said they'd have training and mentoring and all the sort of softer stuff. And they have incrementally inched their way forward to about 22, 23% women in that zone. Now, I think when we come back from that Australian experience and say, what's that telling us? It's Really telling us something about the big debate. And the big debate that sort of rages is do we need to fix the structures or do we need to fix the women? Do we need to say to the women, be more confident, lean in, you know, exhibit these kinds of behaviours and you'll get through? Or do we need to fix the structures? And once again, like all debates that rage back and forth, there's a bit of truth on both sides. But I'm a real believer we need to fix the structures. Uh, And I think the the Australian example helps prove that, uh, that it's not just about more, you know, training and, you know, sort of uh, mentoring and things like that for women. It's about a more profound set of issues than that.
0: Do you think of those kinds of quotas as permanent or are they temporary until you get women and men into rough alignment?
2: I think they're temporary. And, uh, you know, once you get to a world, and and it doesn't mean that you'd have to go through the mechanical process of um, getting rid of the rule. I mean, we're almost at that point in um, Australian politics, Australian Labor politics, where the rule is no longer uppermost in people's mind. Oh, heavens, are we going to meet the rule? Are we going to meet the rule? Because now we've just got to a stage where, as it comes out, is going to meet the rule. So, um, there's less of a drive coming from the statute um, that we adopted as a political party and it's more just the norm. So it'll fall away in impact once you get to a critical mass of
0: women. Did you notice downstream effects from that rule? Did you, Were there more women entering into politics as a result?
2: Oh, well, certainly uh, there were uh, more women selected for parliament. I think more women uh, who came into the Labor Party could imagine themselves in parliament. And because of our Westminster system, because you had more women on the backbench, it was more likely they'd come through into the ministry. And so we had ministries that could you know, have more women at the front of them. Uh, so yes, it flowed through everywhere. The argument that was used... In Australia on the conservative side of politics was, oh, no, that means that you're not selecting people on the basis of merit. But once again, that takes us back to the point about what's merit. And if you believe that it's equally distributed between the sexes and you're seeing a result that's, you know, 70% or more men, then that's telling you that there are women of merit who didn't get to come through.
0: Was there backlash within, I'm just talking about within the labour universe, was there backlash? And what was the Nature of the backlash, and how long did it last, and what were the what were the kind of arguments? Presumably, that argument was used.
2: Oh, yes, that argument was definitely used. Um, there was this was a fierce debate. Um, this wasn't. Uh, I, I feel like I may have told the history in a more benign way than it was lived. Um, this was a fierce debate within the Labor Party as to whether this rule was going to be adopted, and it was finally adopted at a national conference. Uh, And right up until the moment of adoption, there was fierce resistance to it. Fortunately, the then Prime Minister, Labor Prime Minister, Paul Keating, was a supporter of it, so that profoundly helped. Uh, But I remember one of the women who'd been right at the, the front of this campaign Uh, telling us afterwards that a very senior uh, male politician rushed over to her after the rule was adopted and said, quote, unquote, you bitches, you've won, Uh, to which she said, I want that on my
0: gravestone, (laughs) you know. Would you recommend that for any country? Look,
2: I'm always conscious that in our complex world, you can never just pick something up and smash it down into someone else's system and say, job done. Uh, and we've seen too much of that done around the world. But I would certainly advocate that every political party thinks through whether a mechanism, a target, a quota would work for them. You know, And you'd have to adapt it to systems. Uh, but I think unless you've squarely looked that debate in the face, you're probably not going to get to the profound change we need to see.
0: Well, you have a good natural experiment in Australia. If you have one party that has them and one party that doesn't, you can track and see how the two rates of female participation differ over time, right? You, yes, a nice, we, we it's can. a nice little case study. And um, to talk about, let's talk about other institutional things. Um, uh, around things like family leave and like well, what would be next on your list if you so let, let's talk about the institutional agenda of female leadership equality what's next on the list after quotas
2: well i think quotas uh, can play a role uh but you know many of the other things we've talked about in terms of how merits viewed and who gets promoted those things need to be looked at then on the sort of work family life um once again we don't know everything we need to know and uh You know the toolbox that we have for change in big businesses in political parties is a pretty thin toolbox. And I was absolutely persuaded of how thin the toolbox was when I studied it after being in politics and wanting to write my book and write thoughtfully about gender. So there's lots of us, you know, lots of work for us at the Global Institute for Women's Leadership and others around the world to do to multiply the number of tools in the toolbox. But Of the things we know work now, an important one is work-life flexibilities, but making sure that they are used by both men and women. So there's uh, very clear evidence that if you've got flexible work policies and it's only ever used by women, then that's the mummy track and that's the second track and it's the track that's hard to get promoted out of. Whereas if those flexibilities are used uh, by both men and women, then it is no longer a net detriment towards promotion. So actually, um, you know, men uh, stepping up and saying, um, I'm going to take leave at the time of the birth of my child. Um, I'm going to not work in the office on, you know, Thursday or whatever it is, because I'm going to stay at home and look after um, our our baby, our All of those things, if those flexibilities are used by men, then there will be less punishment
0: involved in using them. How do you get men to use them as much as women?
2: Well, it's one of those, uh, once it gets started, I think it will uh, spread. But initially, I think you need men at a leadership level to do it, to give permission to other men. I mean, I can understand why a man would think, I've never been in a workplace where anybody else has done this. If I'm the first one to do it, is everybody going to be looking at me going, wow, that's kind of, you know, no no one's going to say it to my face, but are they going to be thinking, wow, that's kind of interesting, you know, how invested is he in his job if he's looking for all these flexibilities? You know, can I afford that risk because I want to, you know, be promoted, do well in my career? Um, so role modelling from the top that, yep, it's okay and your career will be fine I think is
0: really important. I want to go back to something you said at the very beginning. I think this is a good place to... To, to wrap up and that is I was curious about this connection between educational opportunity and uh leadership roles because it does strike me that if you looked at least at industrialized countries in uh, edu- the the educational battle is more than being won it's it's women are now outperforming men um educationally on at many levels so does that once again, is this one problem or is it two? Um, and Or do you think we're just going to see that, that this edu- the fact that we've now seem to be winning the educational battle in the industrialised world mean that the leadership battle is an inevitable victory down the line?
2: I think education is a necessary but not sufficient condition to fix the rest of gender equality. If it was sufficient, then you and I would live in gender equal societies because in our societies more women uh, get, uh, you know, in the US context, college education, my context, university degrees um, than men. So we would have won. So we know that it's not the silver bullet. But unless we've got equal chances in education, then I think the rest becomes a bit of a pipe dream. So when I look at statistics from around the world, and obviously my focus through the Global Partnership for Education is in the developing world, and you see statistics like only one in ten girls finishes uh, secondary school. You know, that is not a society where we can see gender equality coming onto the landscape anytime soon. So we do have to invest in that education challenge, make sure girls get a great education. Um, it ultimately matters for their prospects for leadership, but it matters for so much more. You know, the evidence is clear that a educated girl will uh, tend to marry later. She'll have fewer children. She'll be able to earn income for her family. She'll be less likely to get HIV AIDS. She'll be more likely to send her kids to school. And so it goes. Um, and you get on an upward cycle of uh, development and empowerment So we do need to make sure that that is happening and that requires a huge global efforts because there's so much to do. But even as we do that, we've got to be solving this leadership challenge. And one of the things about um, getting to work in both spaces is I do get to talk to women from right around the world, including women from many developing countries, from many parts of Africa, and people would look at the leadership challenge and say, wow, you know, that's so culturally specific. It'll be incredibly different in Australia than it is in Nigeria or something like that. And that's partly true but not 100% true because when you talk to women in you know, Nigeria or other parts of Africa, many of the things they'll raise that are holding women back are things we've talked about in this conversation.
1: So, wow, Iceland, Rwanda, or New Zealand, that's where you need to be for a shot at equality. At least that's where a lady version of a 21 year old Malcolm Gladwell needs to be. It's a relief to hear that somebody with Gillard's experience is now figuring out how to level the playing field for other women. Ultimately, her advice about quotas and fixing the structures versus telling us to lean in, that's what I'm taking away. And hopefully, that's how one day I'm gonna be one of those bitches who wins. Solvable is a collaboration between Pushkin Industries and the Rockefeller Foundation with production by Laura Hyde, Hester Kant, Laura Sheeter and Ruth Barnes from Chalk and Blade. Pushkin's executive producer is Mia LaBelle, research by Sher Vincent, engineering by Jason Gambrell and the great folks at GSI Studios. Original music composed by Pascal Wise and special thanks to Maggie Taylor, Heather Fine, Julia Barton, Carly Migliori, Jacob Weisberg and Malcolm Gladwell. You can learn more about solving today's biggest problems at rockefellerfoundationorg slash solvable. I'm Maeve Higgins. Now go solve it.
0: It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentions, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job and we have to find out who did they kill? It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used
1: to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling, because I was like, this is this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything?
0: I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm plus.